When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Cannonball is part of the Agora Podcast Network. If you're interested in exploring other independent podcasts focusing on the rich realms of human knowledge, check out some of the other podcasts on the network like American Biography, The History of Alchemy, Beyond the Big Screen, Lands of Leviathan, and Tiny Vampires. And if you're an advertiser looking to reach an audience of discerning podcast listeners who are interested in the rich realms of human knowledge and think you might have a product or service that could advance those realms of knowledge, get in touch with us. We might could make something work. And while we've gallivanted out into the outer reaches of the realms of the shill, I'd like to put a plug in for the Cannonball's web presence. We do have a blog that's intermittently updating in which we'll be seeing a little bit more activity in the coming future. You can find us at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. You can also track us down on Facebook if you look for the group for the Cannonball Podcast. And one last thing. Daniel and I both guested on a couple of Agora podcasts last month. We popped by the Agora Exchange to explain what exactly we think we're doing here, and I did a piece for the annual Halloween show, Agoraphobia, on James Merrill's The Changing Light at Sandover, a 20th century American epic poem written with the help of a Ouija board. If you're not overly tired of our voices, check those out. Thanks, and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Uh, my name is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing, man? Hey, very good. It is, uh, it's good to be back on the show. Um, <laughs> although I really enjoyed the last episode with, uh, with, with an actual expert on <laughs> the subject, um, was re- which was uh, really great. It was, uh, I thought Matt was a, a terrific guest, but like I said, I, I'm, I'm glad to be back. The uh, you know, paternity still exists for me, of course. Uh, the baby's doing great, but it's a little less all hands on deck at the moment. You know, we've sort of uh, gotten into a bit of a, a bit of a more comfortable rhythm. So, so I'm back. I'm here. Uh, I, I even have a uh, a glass of red wine. 
to get into the Frankish swing of things. Um, sadly, it is, it is not a French wine. It is, uh, is a, a, a varietal that came in a box called Red Revolution. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty tasty. It's, it's making me feel, um, making me feel every inch the Francophile. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm ready to talk about some, some classic French theater, man. All right, cool. Well, what I thought we could do is <clears throat> begin by sort of summarizing, uh, each of the plays one by one, and then we could turn it back on itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's do this like a parallel structure. We'll start off with a summary of the misanthrope, then do a summary of Tartuffe, mm-hmm. and then analyze Tartuffe briefly and then go back into the misanthrope. Because I think we both found the misanthrope to be somewhat more complicated and discussion, well, I won't say worthy, but amenable. Yeah, exactly. It's, I love this. This will be our, our cloud atlas. Uh, <laughs> it's just the, the, my one cultural touchstone for that particular form of dramatic arrangement. But yeah, yeah, I, I like that. We'll, we tackle Moliere through a, uh, a bit of a creative uh, structure here. I, I'm into it. I, I was thinking Beckett's Watt and perhaps <laughs> Bartok's music for strings, percussion, and celesta and the golden ratio, but we'll follow the, No, I'm kidding. I'm just I, – I, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I have to play the part of the, the jerk. That's okay. That- I, I feel like I have to play the part of the rube and uh, it all – it comes together. You're not a jerk at all, Claude. Not at all. Well, you're, see, you're, that's you're, the thing. You're, you're someone not who the knows rube. what they're talking about. Well, thank you very much. Well, I, I, I feel like uh, this is interchangeable in some ways. You know, someday when we're both 80 years old, we'll finally get to Pinchon's Mason and Dixon. And, and what those two cats find is that their opposites blend into each other and they both become parallels. And uh, I, I think I'm much more the uneducated rube, in, in all honesty. And I, I, would, right, so, I would call myself the uh, the pompous jerk in most situations. So it's it's, <laughs> it's good we can ex- we can explore our own personalities uh, through this through this funhouse mirror we call the cannonball. <laughs> Hello again, everybody. All right. Are we starting the show again? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm going to try to read my own handwriting and see if I can walk us through the misanthrope. Okay, so Act 1 begins with Alkest, who is our misanthrope, and he is too honest to exist in this world. He will not flatter anyone. He will not kowtow to social niceties, and he must tell everyone exactly what he thinks. So we open with him discussing with Philant. Uh, his upcoming lawsuit. Now, Fallant is the voice of reason. Fallant is, um, I guess, a kind of stock character that we find again in Tartuffe, uh, who is counseling that you have to take a middle way and, I guess, flatter some people some of the time and then be politely honest other parts of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, Alkest is in a lawsuit, the terms of which aren't quite clear, which I thought was kind of interesting. There are two lawsuits that actually occur in The Misanthrope, and the first one, which is sort of like this overarching lawsuit, is never exactly clarified. But anyway, it's an ongoing lawsuit. It's a bit like uh, it's it's, it's the MacGuffin, where it's it's, it's a plot device that it doesn't matter what it specifically is, it's there to 
affect the characters in a certain way. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and and Alkest. Uh, I guess we can assume that in some way, shape, or form, he's being sued for libel, which in his case is probably more like some kind of truth-telling mm-hmm. or inability to flatter. Okay, so <coughs> Flant is advising sensible discretion, but Alkest says no, and Alkest is obsessed with truth at all costs, but he's madly in love with Selamine, and Selamine is a coquette. That's the word they use, or at least the word that Wilbur translates mm-hmm. throughout the text. And she is sort of carrying on, we find out later she's carrying on um, multiple relationships by letter with several other people. <clears throat> so she's sort of stringing on several other characters in the the text and the the strange part of this is that Alkest is madly in love with her even though she is the antithesis of his own obsession with candor. Okay. So uh then Arant comes into the scene and Arant is an acquaintance and he arrives and he wants praise for a sonnet and Alkest won't give him praise. Arant leaves insulted, and Alkest stands his ground. Fallant says to be polite. Alkest storms off, and Fallant follows. That's the end of Act 1. Now, Act 2 picks up with Alkest encountering Selamine, but he can't get her alone. And we have a long scene of gossip where the major players and Selamine sort of come on and um, basically do an autopsy on the reputation of various people around town. Uh, Alkest <laughs> is outraged. That just felt like a kind of like, every time I read one of those you know, pithy takedowns of someone else who's not there in the room, I just heard, boom, roasted after like every single <laughs> <laughs> Yo, but I, I think that's what it's meant to do. And then Alkest is outraged, but several other characters, uh, particularly Philant and Eliant, Selamine's honest cousin, point out that these are the exact same opinions that Alkest has. Mm-hmm. So Selamine is roasting people behind their backs, and Alkest is aggravated by, by that. But these are the same things that Alkest has been saying all along. Uh, Alkest uh, says, well, at least mine is out in the open. He proclaims his love to Selamine by pointing out all of Selamine's faults. And then uh, the whole thing is interrupted when Alkest is called to court. Uh, Orant is suing him for saying that his sonnet in the first act is no good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so Act Three. While Kes, while Alcest is at court, Selamine entertains friends and suitors. She also enterta- entertains Arsinoe, her friend, who, because she can't get a man, has turned prude. The two engage in a quick sort of verbal tête-à-tête. Alcest comes back, but Selamine leaves to write a letter, and Arsinoe implies that she has a thing for Alcest and a plan to expose Selamine. 
Act 4 opens with Fallant telling Eliant about the dismissal of Orant's suit. Uh, Orant's suit is dismissed between the acts, and we never quite see it. We only get Fallant's description of it. And apparently it was all very ridiculous. Uh, Orant forgave, and the rest went home. We get a discussion of Eliant's feelings for Alkest, as well as her desire to let things run their course between Alkest and Selamine. Fallant conf- uh, confesses that he has feelings for Eliant and says that if Alkest won't have her, he would gladly offer his hand. Alkest enters and asks Eliant to marry him as revenge on Selamine. He found an incriminating letter, and Selamine enters and talks her way out of it. Then another friend enters telling Alcast that he lost the original court case and must slip town. Okay. In Act 5, Alcast proclaims that he's had it and no longer has faith in human justice and is leaving society forever. Fallant counsels detachment, but Alcast is too incensed. Arant enters and both urge Selamine to pick one. Apparently, Arant has been courting Selamine on the sly, and now both of her would-be lovers are pushing her to say, which one is it? Soon after, the whole cast is on stage, including two of Selamine's other would-be suitors, who have been given a more damning letter of Selamine's by Arsenoe. Selamine's playing all sides has come to light, and no one wants her, except for Alkest, who proposes they leave society together. She protests, he says enough, tells Eliant that he can't have any society, so Eliant and Fallant begin their romance, and Alkest takes himself into exile, where he'll be free to be who he is. So that is the end of the misanthrope. So next we have Tartuffe. And, okay, Matt was absolutely right in pointing out how Moliere is drawing from the tradition of the Commedia dell'arte because oh, 100% yeah that that was that was extremely illuminating i we actually were i guess folks at home uh, claude and i were talking before we started recording and uh, i had um, i usually like i, I well, was explaining to claude like i usually um, like if if i'm you know assigned to play or something not, not that i've been assigned any reading that's the wrong way to put it <laughs> if i'm reading a play i usually like to find a, uh, a, a, a either like a you know a recording of a performance because that always like helps me especially with you know um, less contemporary drama it, it helps to sort of hear the emotional beats being acted out by you know by by, by actors um but uh so after i listened to those i went um it was only after i'd listened to those performances um by uh i believe it was a project by la theater works they were absolutely tremendous perf- uh, uh uh productions i would uh, i would highly recommend you seek them out um and in fact, uh, uh, their production of Tartuffe included uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation's own Q, John Delancey. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, I believe he was playing. Um, he was playing Cleant, uh, I, I believe. Um, uh. But anyway, um, point being, I went back after I listened to that. I, I listened to the episode with Matt, and the absolutely like hearing him sort of explain the the stock plots of the Commedia dell'arte and the stock characters it it really opened up the you know sort of the understanding and interpretation of Tartuffe 
because definitely of the two, Tartuffe is 100% more like the here's an adaptation of a story everyone has already heard before kind of kind of thing. Except yeah. with, a, with a lot of well, I guess we can, in your summary, we'll we'll learn what kind of what got Moliere in trouble for it. <laughs> okay, so let me commence with my summary of Tartuffe. I feel like I'm 17 again. Okay. Tartuffe is a land of contrasts. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So we begin with Orgon's mother uh, excoriating her grandchildren and daughter-in-law for not being as holy as Tartuffe. The whole household of Orgon's house, I can no longer excoriate my own students for being reductive. (laughs) So the whole household sees Tartuffe as a fraud, but Orgon is taken in, so Tartuffe must stay. Cleant, playing the philant role, offers wisdom and good advice as sorry, on handling evil. He basically says we can't exterminate evil, but we can manage it as best we can. (laughs) So Orgon enters, and we see how duped he is by Tartuffe's false piety. Cleant confronts him, and we find how Orgon uh, we we find out how Orgon took him in. Cleant tries to convince with reasoning and the nature of true piety, but Orgon won't have it. And Orgon reveals he's planning on having Tartuffe marry his daughter Marianne, despite her betrothal to Valère. Orgon tells his daughter, and she's stunned. Now, this is at the beginning of Act 2. Sorry, I should read my own notes more clearly, (laughs) or I should write in a way in which a human could understand it. Uh, Sometimes I look at my script, and I imagine that I am trying to decipher the sort of ink blobs from the aliens in Arrival. (laughs) Be that as it may... So, at the beginning of Act 2, Orgon tells his daughter that she's going to marry Tartuffe, and she's stunned. <clears throat> and we get this comic scene of Doreen, Marianne's maid, talking back to Orgon, sort of slyly undercutting him and undermining his power. When Orgon leaves, uh, Doreen tells Marianne that she can... or Sorry, she teases Marianne. She's sort of taunting her a little bit for capitulating to her father's wills. But she, then she helps her decide on a plan. They, they sort of work together to begin this plan to take down Tartuffe. Now, Valera enters for a brief tiff, but Dorian gets the lovers to make up and promises to help... Uh, undermine Tartuffe, and they begin sort of working out some kind of plan. All right, so in Act 3, Dorian has uh, connived to have Tartuffe and Elmir, Orgon's wife, alone together where Tartuffe can make a pass and Elmir can expose him. Dami, the son who's been hiding in the closet the whole time, bursts in and blows it all up. Orgon enters, and Dummy tattles on Tartuffe, but Orgon believes Tartuffe and not his wife or his son. Dummy is disowned and exiled, and Orgon moves forward with his plan to have his daughter marry Tartuffe and sort of put the whole house and all the finances in Tartuffe's hands. Okay, in Act 4, 
Cleon tries to reason with Tartuffe, but Tartuffe wants vengeance, and we can sort of talk about why that's significant. Uh, Tartuffe leaves, and uh, Orgon enters with a contract for Marianne and the home and the wealth. Elmir tries the seduction ruse with Tartuffe again, and this time... She has Orgon hiding and watching. Tartuffe is exposed, but the house and its possessions now belong to him. The contract has been, uh, I guess, ratified, so this whole plot was worth nothing. Furthermore, he has some incriminating papers and plans to use them. A friend of Orgon's who, in some way, shape, or form, had been on the wrong side during a recent episode of Civil Strife, which perhaps you can speak more to, mm-hmm. uh, left Orgon with some of his papers, and Orgon sort of helped him get out of the way. Uh, Tartuffe has the evidence of that and is going to expose Orgon as a, a traitor. So, in Act 5, Orgon knows himself to be undone. He knows that this is all gone to hell. Cleant counsels stoicism, but Orgon despairs. Alright, so Dummy and the family return to try to find a way out, but it's hopeless. The cops show up with a warrant for Orgon uh, due to Tartuffe's release of the papers, and then Valère sneaks in and offers to help Orgon go into hiding. But at the last minute, the sheriff shows up with a warrant for Tartuffe from the king. He's a notorious fraud, and when he snitched on Orgon, the king recognized him and sent him to jail. The end. Yeah, it it really, uh, yeah, the the summary gets it all there. And what I I think we should probably, at least to me, to to sort of, to to kick off discussion a little bit, I, I, I just have to say that Moliere did an excellent job of just making Tartuffe the most unctuous character I have ever <laughs> read in my entire life. Any scene where he's like wheedling with Orgon, like when he's weaseling out of, uh, you know, having been uh, uh, well, sort of the, the first attempt to expose him as a lech, you know, go, goes awry with Dummy, you know, coming out and, and, and him just pleading his case to Orgon is just, just oh, you just want to slap the hell out of that guy. Uh, well, it, you know, I kept uh, coming back to the Groucho Marx line. Well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, but yeah, I think you know the. Um, I think in terms of character, uh, the misanthrope and the and the characters in it are, are sort of more fully drawn. Um, the the characters in, Tar- in Tartuffe are a little more stock, but yeah. uh, I was deeply impressed with Moliere being able to draw out just the kind of. That kind of uh, the 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 kind of overpious unctuousness at the heart of the of the criminal um, hypocrisy at work with uh, with, with Tartuffe. Um, I, th- I think the best way to take this on is we both really sort of found the misanthrope to be richer in or or, or more complicated in a way. Mm-hmm. So let's breeze through Tartuffe and then <laughs> jump back into the misanthrope. Because I, Tartuffe, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is something closer to stock characters and kind of a stock plot. What struck me was the way that it veers really so far towards coming undone mm-hmm. 
like the <clears throat> the evil that that Tartuffe does isn't just a benign well not benign a sort of banal malign right. um con job he, he the the play really does veer close to tragedy yeah and then at the end it's up to the king to sort of unravel it and i, I i'd read it back in high school and it was just like you know, when when you're 16 and 17, you want to say, well, you know, all these Jesus people, they're like not really doing it, not a bunch of hypocrites, and you know, they just <laughs> want my weed. But um, the there's much more to it. Yeah. In that, okay, one more time, it really could go horribly wrong. Oh yeah. And that sense of real loss and the bad guy a very bad guy really winning by the end is palpable there yeah like so, when the like when the play opens you, you or at least for, for me like when i was you know when i first uh first you know read and listened um it, it leads off you think the stakes are going to be just you know the, the stakes are that this guy orgone is going to be so deeply embarrassed when it comes out just what a heel Tartuffe is and you think that's what the stakes are going to be for the or, or like you know that he's that Tartuffe or like you know Tartuffe is going to marry the daughter or something yeah you know that's that's yeah. like then that's serious and that's bad but you think that's going to be the stakes but yeah it's just the, the stakes ramp up to the complete ruin of the lives of like six seven people in one fell swoop by this you know horrible manipulating cad um and it, you're right like it goes in, and it cuts it very close and is only saved by a almost literal deus ex machina ending where the entire the only way the thing is resolved isn't even through any sort of agency of the people afflicted but it's rather because the the king heard about it and this is interesting to me because it ties into you mentioned kind of some of the leverage that tartuffe had on orgon is that orgon was holding on to some documents for his friend arga who had been on the wrong side of a civil war against Louis the Fourteenth, who was the audience for this play? We have to remember Moliere was writing, and this play was performed for an, a courtly audience that included the king Louis the Fourteenth. Um, but so, what was this uh, this uh, this upset? Well, this would have been about uh, what fifteen or so years? Yeah, about fifteen years before Tartuffe was written. And it was pretty early on in uh, in Louis XIV's reign, or at least, I mean, he, he'd been reigning as the titular king since he was a child, but this would have been sort of early on in his sort of getting his sea legs as a, uh, as, as a monarch. And it was, it was a sort of series of revolts and resistances called uh, the Fronde. And they kicked off around the same time that the Thirty Years' War ended. So this would have been around 1648. And anytime you have a bunch of uh, hard-bitten veteran soldiers who are all of a sudden unemployed, you're you're guaranteed all kinds of mass unrest. Throw throw in some royal uncles who are upset about their prerogatives being a bit uh, amended, and you have a real powder keg situation. So what what the Fronde was, and what these sort of resistances were, were basically kind of the last. It was kind of the last ditch effort by the great nobility to retain their accustomed liberties and sort of their their accustomed um, 
license in the face yeah. of an increasingly <clears throat> centralizing absolutist conception of monarchy. The thing to understand about absolute monarchy is that it's it's not you know, the political progression doesn't go from absolute despotism to loosening up a little bit so nobles have more freedom to loosening up even more so that rich people in general have more freedom to loosening up in the French Revolution or whatever. Like the absolute monarchy was a deliberate uh, it was a deliberate response. It was a deliberate policy decision on the part of the court of Louis the Fourteenth in particular, and you know, and sort of the intellectual foment of the time. It was all about. It was sort of this proto enlightenment project of rationalizing, almost centralizing and rationalizing and hardening control. So the Fronde, this thing that was a sort of last ditch effort on the part of the nobility against that uh, that that absolutist monarchy, is what got. Um, Orgon's friend in trouble and what comes to the rescue in the play Tartuffe the absolute authority of the king the absolutist ability of this monarch who, who rules by will alone and not hemmed in by any traditional prerogatives that other people and other nobles or what have you might have he can go in and abrogate this contract out of nowhere just by his own absolute authority so ultimate justice comes down to the primary authority. And in this weird move, <clears throat> it's a justification for the prerogative of the king and a justification for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That the king is the ultimate one who can make the ultimate forgiveness. <laughs> right. And, and it's a little bit ironic also that the, uh, the it, it was through this kind of – it was through the chaos and the destruction that the Fronde inaugurated in France that basically everyone just threw up their hands and were like, well, look, anything, fine. Like, we, we need someone to take the helm. Let's invest all this power in the absolute monarchy so this doesn't happen again. So they really <laughs> shot themselves in the foot. But that's what I thought was it was pretty interesting of in Tartuffe that, like, the, the play itself, the way it's resolved is almost a bit of absolutist monarchist propaganda. Yeah. I, I, because... It, all right, because Cleant is arguing the whole time for a particular model of Christian forgiveness mm -hmm. and acceptance of the faults of others, arguing that you should focus on mending your own faults. Mm -hmm. And then Moliere allows the king to do just that at the end of the play. Yeah. So he's exercising his absolute authority not through punishment but through mercy mm -hmm. right way. right that, that is exactly that. absolutism need not mean you know it was it's absolutism with velvet glove isn't it i mean that's that was like louis XIV's whole shtick <laughs> for lack of a better word um but it is it is interesting that you know tartuffe for all of the sucking up that it does to the secular authority really got moliere in hot water with the church and that's what i guess that's what made it the sort of the the controversial play that it was because tartuffe and and and, and i think it's it's one of those ah, it's one of those amazing sort of backfiring moments where the character of tartuffe and in, in, in the play it's great pains are made like clayot for instance it you know has these entire uh monologues about how true piety is the greatest treasure mankind can have. You know, true piety is is truly like you know it's it's super great to be orthodox and Catholic, and that's what you want to be. Well, yeah. If, if I, I can intervene with some of his speeches at at 
at, at least 189 of, of my text, it's Act 1, Scene 5. He says, uh, so I've been told before by dupes like you, being blind, you'd have all others blind as well. The clear-eyed man you call an infidel, and he who sees through humbug and pretense is charged by you with one of reverence. Spare me your warnings, brother. I have no fear of speaking out for you in heaven to hear. Against affected zeal and pious knavery, there's true and false piety as in bravery. And just as those whose courage shines the most in battle are the least inclined to boast, so those whose hearts are truly pure and lowly don't make a flashy show of being holy. Um, yeah. And then th there's another scene uh, towards... It's when Cleant is talking with Tartuffe about the nature of forgiveness. Uh, this is Act 4, Scene 1. He's, he's talking to, to Tartuffe about forgiving Dummy and allowing Dummy back in the household and, and trying to work a kind of detente between dummy and organ he says uh ought not a christian to forgive and ought he not to stifle every vengeful thought should you stand by and watch a father make his only son in exile for your sake again i tell you frankly be advised the whole town high and low is scandalized this quarrel must be mended and my advice is not to push matters to a further crisis no sacrifice sacrifice your wrath to god above and help dummy regain his father's love and then Tartuffe says, Alas, for my part, I should take great joy in doing so. I've nothing against the boy. I pardon all. I harbor no resentment. To serve him would afford me much contentment. But heaven's interest will not have it so. If he comes back, then I shall have to go. After his conduct so extreme, so vicious, our further intercourse would look suspicious. God knows what people would think. Why, they'd describe my goodness to him as a sort of bribe. They'd say that out of guilt I made pretense of loving kindness and benevolence, that fearing my accuser's tongue I strove to buy his silence with a show of love. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this this sort of gets at what what you're talking about. What yeah. <clears throat> what Cleont is counseling is is revenge really the Christian thing to do? Right. Um you know, the the I think maybe we discussed it either on air or off air about Dante and this idea of vengeance. Mm -hmm. If you're taking revenge, you're taking justice out of God's hands and right. putting it's, it in your own. Right. You're, you're basically saying you do not trust God to make the, make things right. You, do, and, you don't trust the justice of God. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> – that's exactly what Cleant is saying. And Tartuffe says, yes, I agree, but heaven's interest will not have it so. There's this way in which Tartuffe intervenes to say, well, I know what heaven wants, and they want me not to forgive him. And anyway, I would look like an idiot. Right. <laughs> so what will people say if I, if I show myself to be magnanimous? They think I'm a simp, you know. Yeah, and so there's this back and forth between, you know, what I thought was very interesting was uh, this idea, or at least the broad idea of Reformation Christianity versus good old Catholicism is that 
Reformation Christianity or Protestantism is more concerned with the internal truth or the internalization or some kind of absolute truth outside from the activity you might look one way but really be another way and Catholicism is uh, obsessed with ritual and the the external aspect but this gets at some of those complications yeah. well you know what I mean God says yeah go ahead that's good but I'd look like an idiot I mean really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a very um, and it sort of gets to the heart of you know Tartuffe's odiousness also like this kind of like yeah. he, he only thinks in terms of these calculations. It's, yeah. it's and a very, would, it's a very would God simple, want me yeah. to look like an idiot? Would God right, want right. me to look like? <laughs> would God want me, a pious man, to look like an idiot? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what, 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 I'm sorry, what, I just thought that was funny. I, I, oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, it's it's a. Um, yeah, it, it it's and it comes at a kind of an interesting time, um, and again, sort of tying into uh, some of these. I guess why why the Catholic Church was so sensitive to mockery, or or really to, to the idea why they were so ready to believe they were being mocked. <laughs> I guess in France at this time is it was a very insecure time for the church, and not only I mean there were certain frictions with, of course, the ballooning of secular power under the absolutist monarchy but also this was of course in the i mean the 30 years war had wrapped up in 1648 a catastrophic war driven in part because of the 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 divide between protestant and catholic you know polities and peoples on the continent and you know what there were protestants in france Surely this is some sort of fifth column. These are the, you know, the Huguenots, the, the French Calvinists. And and we all, what I thought was kind of interesting uh, that I, I learned a little bit more about as I was doing a little more sort of background research for this episode, that pretty much everyone, like one of the things that you remember about your unit in high school on Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King, is the Edict of Nantes, the Edict of Toleration of Protestants in the Kingdom of France. Um which I believe was in the 1630s or 1620s. It was, it was earlier on in the century. What is less famous is when that, that toleration was revoked uh, about 70 years later, and they were literal like pogroms to drive the Huguenots out of France. There were about around, you know, up, up to maybe a million people, you know, in estimations, but, you know, several hundred thousand at least who were these sort of French Calvinists, these Huguenots. And and about a decade after that toleration was revoked, there were maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred practicing Huguenots left within the territory of the Kingdom of France because there were literal like bands of soldiers would go and kick people out of their homes uh, and and just make life hell for anyone who was a Huguenot. Um, but it's in the, it's in the sort of this sort of I imagine there must have been a bit of a frisson in the decades between these the, the decades of toleration where the church is just suspiciously eyeing down everyone who deviates from any kind of absolute and unquestioning devotion to the church. And here comes Moliere buddying up to Louis XIV, who's already kind of like chafing some of the great landowning bishops, you know, the wrong way by horning in on their traditional, uh, their traditional liberties. He comes up with this play where an outwardly pious man is actually this horrible, wicked villain. And so no, no matter that the play is all about how true, you know, 
we should be on the lookout for hypocrites and you know and they're bad <laughs> and he has this character and he has a character who literally talks about how great it is to be an orthodox catholic and they're the best people in the world yeah Moliere got into some really really hot water with it apparently <laughs> and, and, and uh, yeah apparently the the original the very original version of this um Moliere got so spooked by the reception he got for it that he rewrote it extensively. So apparently, we only have the rewrite, mm-hmm. if I if I recall correctly. Um, which which might which might go a long way toward explaining why there's a character who goes way out of his way to talk about how great the church is. <laughs> but, well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean that that seems to get at this weird. Okay, you capitulate to royal power. And you're screwed by the church. You cozy up to the church, you're screwed by the royal power. Yeah. Uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, let that be a lesson to <laughs> whoever's trying to cozy up to what. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the things that I thought was really kind of fascinating about Tartuffe is how much of this is about control of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all right. Bloom, in some of his writing, is really up on Iago uh, as a master of perspective. And I see what he means. If you read Othello, Iago controls every scene. He controls how we see the characters. And he controls... Well, okay, he doesn't control how we see the characters. He controls how the characters on the stage see the characters. And he controls how they understand the information that they get. Uh, There's an important distinction to be made between the information and the interpretation of the information. Mm -hmm. You with me? That there's this discrepancy. We get so-called the cold hard facts but there's a framework for the cold hard facts that we must that allows us to read the facts in a certain way in both Tartuffe and the misanthrope that perspective or, or that control of perspective is there in a couple of characters and it has to do with justice in this weird way Tartuffe is controlling how other people interpret justice because he has the contracts at the end. He has the information at the end. He has this kind of leverage at the end and that allows him to essentially get what he wants. Yeah. There, there's this real question or, or I guess this cycles back to what we were talking about, uh, uh, having an absolute authority without that absolute authority. The play seems to argue Justice is simply a matter of perception. Yeah. Whoever has the most pieces on the board or whoever can manipulate the pieces to the best of his advantage is the one who gets justice and all others are without hope. Now, in in Tartuffe, that is resolved through the figure of the king. But what was fascinating about the misanthrope is that it's not resolved. It's really not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is and what, a, what a great segue into talking about the other play that we have to talk about. Thank you. It's almost yeah. as if I have notes that I could read. I mean, it's it's amazing. But no, you're absolutely right. Like I, I was a little bit surprised that the uh, 
I honestly expected. That I, I thought that maybe, like, because um, I again, I, I'd listened to the to the play, and I, I thought to myself, like, well, is the file incomplete or something? Like, did I did the library screw this up? Because the play ends so abruptly. It ends with you know, um, it ends with Alceste, you know, marching off, saying like he's he's fed up with this world. He's 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 heading off, and then. Um, you know, it's uh, and Philant saying like, "Oh, well, let's go after him and see if we can convince him to stay." But that's the end of the play. It, it, it doesn't resolve with them like actually convincing Elsa to do anything. It doesn't. It's just him like every all of his worst suspicions about humanity are basically confirmed. Um, he's had it up to here, and he's out. Um, but yeah, Alcest is um, Alcest is is a really fascinating character. I, I think this. Uh, you know, he, he is of course well. I, I presume he is the titular misanthrope. Um, I guess you know he, he must be. He's the most misanthropic of all the characters. Um, but uh, he, it, it is. It, but it's one. I think it's an interesting. It's a very interesting character because we've all had those moments. We've all had those moments where we're sick to death of like at, at work, you know, or something where you're happy. You know, I, I don't know who else is out there, but I I, I work at a um, I work in a very public facing. Uh, way you know i i i interact with the public all day as as my job and you you do have to like you you have to bear up and 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 be you you have to bear up and not be as honest as you might want to be <laughs> a lot of the time <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's, it's more widely applicable of course in in, in society you know in, in every aspect of society of course and we've all had those moments where we're just thinking like boy I, if i could just tell off everyone you know and just yeah. really what i want to think um but of course you you know as as we all know that we also have our our inner phalant there to tell us like now wait a minute guy that might sound good but you know there will be consequences to that yeah, and, and that's the nature of, well, let's all wax Freudian for five seconds, but that's the nature of being social, mm-hmm. that you have to put aside certain aspects of your own wants and desires. You have to put aside certain things that you would say or could say. You have to sublimate some of those desires in order to get along with others, Right, and that's called maturity, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but, is that, Alcest is like that. You know, he's like the the sulky sixteen year old who's going around saying like, "You're all a bunch of phonies. You're all phonies. Yeah, and you're all fake friends." He's 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 a, he's one of those viral Facebook fake friends posts. <laughs> but um, but there's something there there's something else going on here because <clears throat> there's a real question about, or it's it's a real question that I think is lurking within the play itself about what, who is the real you? What is the Mm -hmm. real me? And Alkest seems to be on, he claims to know who and what he is, though that is paradoxical. There's this lurking question about why he's so madly in love with Selamine. And there's this continual discourse about how he's being forced to love her. It's his fate to love her, right? Or right. I, I can't help but he can't love get her. out of it in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would seem to go against this idea that he really knows who and what he is and what he really wants. Well, and I and I think there's, I, I guess, just as a point of like Alcest, maybe not being as as completely 
integral as he thinks. I, I don't know what the what the yes. word is to say uh, to say full of integrity. But um, well, that was uh, what, what really jumped out to me was very early on. It's when well, when Orant comes to deliver his sonnet, and he asks Alceste, "What do you think of my sonnet?" And Alceste, at first, he is very roundabout. He's very circumspect. Yes. And it seems to go against everything he was just saying with Philand about how he needed to be blunt and honest. Because the way he, he starts <clears> about it is like, uh, this is Alceste responding to Orant. He says, sir, uh, you know, Orant says, uh, don't shrink from telling me sincerely what you think. And Alceste says, sir, these are delicate matters. We all desire to be told that we've the true poetic fire. But once to one whose name I shall not mention... I said, regarding some verse of his invention, that gentlemen should rigorously control that itch to write, which so often afflicts the soul. He, he, and he, you know, and continues from there. But he couches all this by saying, "Now I was telling this friend I have that maybe yeah. he's not so good at writing poems." <laughs> you know? Well, that that was an interesting part. Is that for for all of Alkest's bluster at the very beginning, he is very want to be roundabout politic and polite mm-hmm. in the initial go and it almost seems as if Arant provokes him into basically saying your poem is terrible right <laughs> the, 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 there's this weird way but i think you're absolutely right that for all of the the expectation we've been given to the, all of the expectation that that we've been given that he's about ready to blow he is willing to work in the politic vein. It just mm-hmm. comes to nothing. Um, there, there's this way in which he he always reminds me of, or at least this time through, he reminded me of. I I keep going back to the the Marx Brothers, Groucho Marx and Horse Feathers. Whatever it is, I'm against it. <laughs> that it, the the kernel of his being seems to be. To be against whatever it is. And if somebody came out and said, that's a great idea. We must go into exile. Right. We must leave society forever. It seems as if Alkest's reaction would be, that's a stupid idea. You're doing it all <laughs> <Right>. wrong. <laughs> Look, we have a society right here and all we need to do – like it's kind of a – almost like the uh, – oh, gosh. I, he, he does seem sort of beholden of this kind of – idealism almost that if only everyone were totally frank and and honest with one another our society would actually work the way it's supposed to he seems yeah he, he seems to believe at first and then of course he sort of abandons that but well i i mean i was even going into uh this i'm not entirely certain how to frame this or what conclusion i could come to but he goes into this weird place. Matt was bringing up the metatheatrical aspects of the play. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> talking further with Matt uh, off air, one of the things that he was pointing to was this way that you can never quite know the real Moliere. You can never quite know the real real. And <laughs> I, I think this was something he brought up in, in, the, in the interview. Mm-hmm. You can never – Moliere famously wore a mustache as an actor in all of his plays except The Misanthrope, which was taken to be a signifier that he was telling the truth or being the real Moliere. But the real <laughs> right. Moliere is playing a part. Right. There's this question here about what the real real is. Right. So 
his his very being, uh, Alkest's very being, is to contradict others, and so his desire is to leave society forever, where he can be left alone to be himself. Mm-hmm. But the very nature of his being is to contradict others. Right. What what self do you have left <laughs> when there isn't? Yeah. When when there isn't that that you're there as a foil. To the or you see yourself as a foil. You 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 have you've built this what you see as a strong identity in opposition to the the going mores of your time, and, and it comes. It's it's very interesting that it's um it's it's so often couched in Alcest's sort of diatribes about this as being these days or in this time in our times, and uh, you know whether that has something to do with the kind of the that burgeoning court culture. Uh, that Louis the Fourteenth is is uh, sort of uh, is sowing, and of course, anytime you have court culture, you have you know it, by its very nature that lends itself toward all manner of <laughs> sort of disguised uh, disguised intents and miniature conspiracies and 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 flattery and and you know what have you, just because of the way that those those kinds of court societies operate and the fact that it was so influential on the rest of society by this point you know this kind of the manners of the court were filtering out to at least you know the upper bourgeois we might say that which i think all of these characters belong to i mean i i, I guess yeah. we, can, we can place them in their classes like the fact that anyone is going out and bringing lawsuit against someone other than someone else uh, over a sonnet positions these people as having a lot of time on their hands i think sure <laughs> but they're not, but they're but, not nobles you know but that yeah. sort of, the sort of cult culture has seeped into it and that's alcest sees himself as I, I i would see perhaps alcest sees himself as fighting for those bourgeois values of probity and honesty against the corrupting influence of aristocracy but it can't exist without the corrupting influences right. of you aristocracy. You, you can't be it's, that man without it. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of like um, if you think about the well to move forward a couple hundred years into French culture, the the aesthetic avant garde was setting itself absolutely up against the the sort of bourgeois hedonism, Mm -hmm. though the aesthetic avant-garde could not have existed without the bourgeois hedonism in order to set itself up against. Right. And the bourgeois hedonism absolutely needed the aesthetic avant-garde to justify its own existence because it kept buying it. Uh, In Baudelaire's uh, Fleur du Mal, the very first poem to the reader is essentially, hey, I'm this horrible, hideous terrible human being who experienced all this and wrote it but you bought the damn book so, <laughs> right. I mean, it, 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 okay that's a couple hundred years in the in the future but that root seems to be back here there's this tension that cannot be resolved and you really really sort of wonder Alcest needs Philand and Eliant mm-hmm. to come drag him back because his very raison d'etre is to be antisocial, mm-hmm. and he can't be antisocial outside of society. So it's sort of like everyone needs each other, and it cannot be resolved, and they must keep fighting until the end. Otherwise, they collapse into nothingness. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe honestly, maybe that's Alcest, you know, a final goal. He's he's try, he's attempting to achieve uh, 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 moksha. He, he's achieving the, <laughs> the the enlightenment, the annihilation of self by removing himself from that which sustains him. Who can say? <laughs> but but that's a, that's the weird <laughs> thing about this play, and and this is sort of what we said is that it's bizarrely unresolved Mm -hmm. and no perspective seems adequate Mm -hmm. in tartuffe we had cleant as the sort of capitulation to catholicism whether catholicism wanted to acknowledge it or not and to the authority of the king who probably did acknowledge it Mm -hmm. but in in the misanthrope we don't have a clear perspective that we can say, aha, this is the one that does it. Fallant yeah. would appear to be the one. He's the one who's sort of counseling reason and, you know, uh, just going along with things for as much as he possibly can. On page 23 of the Wilbur translation, he, he has this sort of peon to hey, just acknowledge society's faults. He says, come, let's forget the follies of the times and pardon mankind for its petty crimes. Let's have an end of rantings and of railings and show some leniency towards human failings. This world requires a pliant rectitude. Too stern a virtue makes one stiff and rude. Good sense views all extremes with detestation and bids us be noble in moderation. And then further on, he says, I take men as they are, or let them be, and teach my soul to bear their frailty. And whether in court or town, whatever the scene, my phlegm's as philosophic as your spleen. Mm-hmm. Nothing seems to bother him. He's, he's okay, stoicism, let's be detached, let's be removed. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, is called into question later on when he's talking to Eliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's talking to 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 Eliot, who is the cousin of Salamine and the would be suitor of Alcest, and he's saying that uh, essentially. <clears throat> well, okay, she says on on page one hundred five of the Wilbur translation, sir, I believe it. Eliot says, sir, I believe in frankness, and I'm inclined in matters of the heart to speak my mind. I don't oppose his love for her, uh, Alcest's love for Salamine. Indeed, I hope with all my heart that he'll succeed, and were it in my power, I'd rejoice in giving him the lady of his choice. But if, as happens frequently enough in love affairs, he meets with a rebuff, if Salamine should grant some rival suit. I'd gladly play the role of substitute, nor would his tender speeches please me less because they'd once been made without success. And then Fallant says, well, madam, as for me, I don't oppose your hopes in this affair, and heaven knows that in my conversations with the man, I plead your case as often as I can. But if those two should marry and so remove all chance that he will offer you his love, then I'll declare my own and hope to see your gracious favor pass from him to me. In short, should you be cheated of Alcest? I'd be most happy to be second best. <laughs> okay, on, on the one hand, this is, uh, okay, as a near 40-year-old, or by the time this runs, probably a 40-year-old, this seems to me logical, reasonable, rational, and sane. Mm-hmm. If I were to counsel one of my young students, I'd say, well, life is long, you love much, uh, you will find other people, so on and so forth. But 
in the moment, this is more or less Fallant's proposal. Mm-hmm. Is this not cold-blooded? There seems something really lacking in the romance between Eliant and Fallant, which yeah. we're made to believe is the most reasonable, rational, insane one. And it's basically a sort of, well, let's work out the details. Let's let's treat this like a mathematical equation. Uh, if this doesn't work out right for this, and if this equation does not work out here, then perhaps we can combine these two variables and we'll have a pleasant conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something a little icy about it that, that I think yeah. I'm meant to see. And, that, I, and now that you're explaining it that way, this really contrasts very starkly with, uh, with Alcest and his relationship with, uh, uh, with Selimane. And that you would think so. Philant makes his Philant's out there making an argument and saying to uh, Alceste, like you know, you're too, you're too, you're being too rigid and too logical. You need to make room in your heart for human folly. Um, and yet, the person who's accused of being too rigid and too logical is the one most beholden to this utter, the utter senseless love for Selimane that is easily the most the most emotion that's shown by any of these characters is, is his sort of fraught um, struggle with himself or his feelings that he has for Salome. And here we have Fallant, the, the fellow that you might presume to be like, well, he says to make a little, make a little space in your heart for folly. And yet he's so sort of, he's so philosophic about his folly that what, what folly does he actually have in his life? Not very much well, at all, you know, and, and and I guess that's perhaps that's the ultimate uh, sort of irony of this kind of uh, this kind of neo-stoicism that's, you know, accept the world as it is for all its faults. And yet you take yourself so outside of it that you uh, do you even partake in it. You know, you're just you're, you stand so outside of it. Now, I have much more ammunition, but I think <laughs> it might be time to take a quick break from the sponsors and uh, we'll come back to this, and I'll keep making my case that The Misanthrope is a play that seems to have this kind of missing center. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ah, what a lovely product and or service. Now, (laughs) I think one of the other things to get into is whether or not Selamine has a case. Hmm. There's, okay, Alkest is <clears throat> sort of critiquing her. Well, not sort of critiquing. He is critiquing her for all of her flirtatiousness and for keeping all of these men around. And she she claims different reasons at different points, and they might actually be sane reasons mm-hmm. on 56 or on 55 and 56, this is Act 2, Scene 3. Alkest is claiming that one of her friends is just uh, an absolute uh, bore and an obnoxious. He's a gossip. And Alkest says, if he's a pest, why bother with him then? And she says, heavens, one can't antagonize such men. Why, they're the chartered gossips of the court and have a say in things of every sort. One must receive them and be full of charm. They're no great help, but they can do you harm. And though your influence be ever so great, they're hardly the best people to alienate. One of the things uh, going in this court culture is the, the fact that so many people can undermine you or or really hurt your case, literally, because she has another law case. Right. It seems like everyone <laughs> yeah. is being sued. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it made me very curious about uh, jurisprudence and the court system in, during the reign of Louis XIV. But I, sadly, I was not able to do a lot of research in that regard. But yeah, so the that that's one thing that's that's sort of going on is you can't piss off certain people like there 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 are certain people that right. you can't you know you have to sort of keep them around and you have to keep them pleased otherwise they could really hurt you and then some people you just keep around because they really can help you they're not fun but they can do you uh some good <clears throat> she's uh sort of Giving her repost to Alcast at Act 2, Scene 1, You're much mistaken to resent him so. Why I put up with him, you surely know. My lawsuit's very, very shortly to be tried, and I must have his influence on my side. Um, one of the things going on throughout the misanthrope is all of these lawsuits are not really determined so much by the actual facts of the case as to how you can sort of grease the wheels. Or or influence people or 
politicize your case so that more people believe you than not, so on and so forth. Uh, justice is not a system. Well, okay, if it is a system, it's a system of perception, which is what I was getting at with Tartuffe. Tartuffe can control perception. The other characters in in the misanthrope are very interested in controlling the perception or keeping people around who can help them control perception so that they can get, quote unquote, justice should the need arise. Mm-hmm. Even Fallant is arguing with Alkest, hey, you got to work the system if you don't work the system, you're going to lose the case. And Alkes says, no, I want absolute justice. And Fawaz right. is saying, well, you're not going to get it. <laughs> yeah. He, he, wants to win, he wants to win his case by merits. And Fawaz is just desperately trying, like, guy, you got to understand where you live. This is the court of the Sun King we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's essentially it. Yeah. So on the one hand, um, Selamine is – a flirt and she's keeping all these people around. On the other hand, she kind of has a point. On the one hand, Fallant is reasonable and rational. On the other hand, he's a little too reasonable and rational. Uh, None of this stuff absolutely works out. On the one hand, Selamine is going behind everybody's back to be a total gossip. On the other hand, these are the exact same things that Alkest has been saying about everybody the whole way through. So how do we resolve this? The play sort of seems to suggest that none of this is really resolvable. The only resolution is to go into self-exile and then have your friends drag you back. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think I'm coming around, Claude. I think you have a very, you have a very well thought out case for the, well, I think the, the very sort of open end, the, the irresolved end of the misanthrope points to the fact that there, yeah, it's, it has no missing center. There's no, there's no way to resolve it because no one has the right answer to any of this, and we're all just stuck. You know, well, I, I guess, yeah. In the chat, we were talking about, and you said that I put this well that um, that the driving force of conflict in the misanthrope is this interiority that all these characters have, and that the the play itself is the various their various interior lives crashing into and rubbing up against each other in in, in ways that they. In ways that go, it's their interior lives, their interiority crashing into each other in in ways that they were not expecting to have them go. And that's where we have like sort of Sel, uh, when Selimane is confronted by both um, uh, uh, Orant and um, uh, and Alceste, or is it Acast and Alceste? I think it's Acast and Alceste. We're left and like then they're both there saying, "Look, we're both here. Just say." I really love you or you so we can all be done with this. And she can't do it. <laughs> she, she just can't bring herself to do it. And that's, that's all of them. Like they all, they're all trying, they're all playing these, they all have these interior lives and they're very carefully choreographing their exterior lives. And here, and, and in so doing, they're all tripping each other up in their various choreographies almost. Yeah, I I think that's a a sort of perfect way to think about it. Yeah. And the one who would claim that he's doing that the best is Alkest. Right, because he's saying there's no artifice. And yet, yeah. 
he's all artifice. He's all artifice. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's the, the the one who claims he's the most honest and self knowing is the one who cl- is the most self unknowing because he doesn't even realize that his move will destroy him. Mm-hmm. It, it, every move he makes will destroy him. Whether he if he ended up with Selamine. <clears throat> That would destroy him. If he ended up outside of society, that would crush him utterly because all he must be is the objection to society. Like there's there's nothing there. It's almost like the only one without interiority is the one who claims so hard that he is the most interior being. The one who is railing so much against... Uh, what society wants, man, <laughs> is the one who has capitulated utterly to society. Yeah, you know, it's it's this weird backwardsness in the play that I, I I've been trying to think through, and that's why I thought Matt's um, intervention in terms of metatheatricality was so worthwhile because it seems to be absolutely playing with these ideas of what is the real character? What is the real me? The real me is the social role that I play Mm -hmm. and the interiority is just an illusion that I tell myself is there. That seems to be what's, or at least that seems to be what I'm finding at stake in the misanthrope that was lurking in some ways in Tartuffe, mm-hmm. but but I think is is front and center in the misanthrope, and it can't be resolved because these issues can never be resolved. Yeah, it's it's a constant negotiation between your own desires and social desires, and you need to capitulate to society, man, because you have to eat. Right. <laughs> At the same time, you're really really angry that you. That there's comp- that there's constant compromise to be had. Yeah, and you, and yeah, it's my, guys. It's the curse of being a social ape. That's <laughs> that's where it boils yeah. down. If we were all like tigers, if we could all make our own way as solitary beings out there, except for like mating, I suppose it would all be different. But here we are. We're social apes. Uh, it's 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 that constant negotiation, you know. And I and I think honestly, it shows some. Um, it shows some Alcestian integrity on Moliere's part that he leaves the play so unresolved. And yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like, look, here's, you know, <laughs> here's, here's my honesty. Here it is. I'm just, I'm standing in my truth. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, that's, that's where I ended up with that play. Yeah. That's, that's sort of where I ended up. And I, that's the best I can do with it at the moment. Yeah. I do have to say, um, as far as the reading goes, this was a whole lot more fun than the Paradiso. Oh, very much so. <laughs> and I guess we should say we were reading the, uh, which I guess is kind of the standard, um, the Richard Wilbur translating yeah. here. And um, it's a little bit, it took a little bit to get into because it ends up being very sing-songy. Yeah. And that's, that's attempting to retain the verse aspect of the French, but anytime, I mean, it's just guys, anytime that you're translating something that was in verse in another language into another language, I honestly, my hat is off to any translator who attempts that because I, I just, you know, creating something with meter out of 
something that was written in a language with you know completely different rhythm and and rhyme schemes and whatnot you know it's sometimes it does sound a little awkward but but honestly like even for all like the sing-songiness there's a lot of like rhyming couplets and such there are yeah. moments of real poetry it, <laughs> to, yeah. to sort of undercut Gee, myself you think? yeah no R- richard wilbur is is a, a very good poet he's um he's kind of an overlooked 20th century poet mm-hmm. uh he's probably mostly known for his translations but what was sort of fascinating about him was the 20th century poetry or i guess post 1950 20th century poetry whatever you want to call postmodern or what i'll call postmodern as just as a temporal marker mm-hmm. it was after the sort of high water uh high water mark of high modernism uh wilbur was one of a group of poets and that came of age under the aegis of high modernism, particularly high modernism as it was interpreted by the academy in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. So you inherited this idea that poetry must be abstract, it must be impersonal, it must be formal. And then the narrative is uh, tons of poets broke from that into informal, not conservative, radical, leftist, uh, personal, free verse writing, uh, that model doesn't hold Mm -hmm. if you actually look at the poetry written. And one of the ways that the model doesn't hold is because of Richard Wilbur, who was a formalist. Uh, I mean, throughout his whole career, he's still alive as of this recording, but um, <laughs> he's, he's rather old. But he uh, he was a formalist throughout his whole career, and yet he was more on the fairly radical end of things. If I remember correctly, he had an FBI file on him. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, he was anti-Vietnam, uh, pro-civil rights. He was along the ri- long for the ride for for all of the good causes of the later twentieth century, and. Um, his his verse remained formal. So anyway, he's he's sort of an overlooked poet, I think, because of the formality of his verse in some ways. But he he manages to translate this. I, I think you're right with a sense of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are couplets, and couplets have a tendency to sound Doctor Susie. Yeah, it's 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 verged like I, I think. At first, I was thinking like, well, if this is just going to be a bunch of like Mother Goose rhymes, I don't know how much more I can take of it. <laughs> but once you once you really do get into the, I think Mr. Wilbur had a very has a very keen sense for the the rhythms of the the exchanges, especially like when there are yeah. when when line breaks occur between lines of dialogue with two different characters, it retains the rhythm uh, very well. And and, 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 and that was so much. It feels like that was so much of the the fun that Moliere was having by having yeah. characters talk back and forth, completing each other's rhymes. You know, that's it. And and there's also that sense of speed, mm-hmm. like the the couplet. I, oh, was it was it William Butler Yeats who said that the couplet is like opening up a thought and then clicking it shut? Yes, that, that was William Butler Yeats. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm I'm botching I, I I'm botching the the line, but it's something yeah. like opening up a thought and clicking it shut. That mm-hmm. it's it, it raises something and then conclusion. Mm-hmm. It raises something and then elegant conclusion. And I think Wilbur manages to capture that and capture the speed of of moving through that. Mm-hmm. Like the, these weren't a slog. 
the, you can read a Moliere play sort of in an afternoon and oh, yeah. you've got it, you know, and this didn't require copious footnotes. <laughs> right, right. And it, but it, I mean, you know, it would, it, and that was kind of the interesting thing about the plays is that the, you know, it, it certainly helps to locate a lot of the kind of a lot of the jokes, honestly. It helps, you know, if if you have some more context about like the times and society that you know these these characters are in, it sort of helps you sort of comprehend the what the conflicts are, why people are inter- and you know interacting in this particular way or that. But even completely devoid of that, it would still it still is entirely legible. Like you can sit down and read it, and despite, of course, you know, I mean, a bit of the the morals are a little old fashioned. Like we don't have fathers signing marriage contracts for their daughters as much anymore um but at the same time like you know you, you could really you know you could not know much of anything about uh 17th century france plop down in the middle of one of these plays and yeah you pick it up i mean it's it's really and i think that speaks to the the strength of sort of the realization of characters that moliere has and, and also i think to the translation that mr wilbur is as uh, uh uh generated for us yeah. So I, I guess that that sort of brings us to our conclusion. Uh, would you recommend this? Uh, I absolutely would. Uh, I think Moliere is a hoot. And I <laughs> I'd only ever, you know, uh, my first my first uh, uh, encounter with Moliere, I had sort of heard of him before, but never like read any until a couple of years ago. I, I subscribed to the stupendous periodical Lapham's Quarterly. And if you yeah. are like me and you are like a magpie for little historical tidbits, get yourself a subscription to Lapham's. It's awesome. It's it's a whole magazine, a quarterly magazine of excerpts of historical documents and literature or whatever from all over the world and all through time. It's a spectacular, like, and they're based around themes. Like, oh, like a theme might be yeah. the ocean or something. And it'll be like a Chinese poem about the ocean. Jacques Cousteau talking about inventing the aqualung. It's a really, it's a great magazine. Uh, but anyway, there was one that... Um, it may even, I think the theme may even have been comedy. And it was a scene from uh, Moliere's play, The Doctor. And I don't remember much about it, except that like I was just kind of leafing through it on a Sunday afternoon and cracking up. I mean, I was like cracking up and like calling my wife over to like read out jokes to her. And I was like, this is tremendous. Yeah. I should read more of this guy. And then I didn't. <laughs> but, until this time. But yeah, I would absolutely like it's seriously. Um, yeah, I actually uh, the, the recordings that I listened to were uh, from a project called L.A. Theater Works. And I acquired them via a uh, the public library streaming media service called Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A. Check and see if your local library is a Hoopla subscriber. You should find them there. Um, otherwise, you can honestly, like, I think you can find, like, PDFs and stuff online. Um, again, go to your local library. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like Claude was saying, like, you just sit down and have a nice cup of coffee on a Sunday morning, you know, at a, at a free afternoon, and you'll get to read a a delightful play with a lot of a lot of zingers, uh, a bit of pathos, a bit of uh, interesting character work. You identify with them a little bit, and uh, and you'll be done in time for for your second tea. Yeah, I I was annoying the hell out of my wife by speaking in couplets for an afternoon, <laughs> which is which is what happens from time to time. But yeah, this this was a lot of fun to read, uh, especially coming off of Dante, where, right. where I felt like <laughs> it's some heavy lifting. Sort of, yeah, and uh, just moving on to this, I I, I think this was uh, a, a a good a good spot of fun. Well, speaking of heavy lifting. 
Okay. Here's what we're going to attempt to do. <laughs> we're going to attempt to read Montaigne's whole book. Uh, next up is going to be us doing as close to a deep dive as possible as we can into the writings of Montaigne. We are both very busy fathers. <laughs> So to give us a little bit of time and a head start, we're going to begin by talking to Matt Shifflett again. He's uh, the friend of mine who's a scholar and a Francophile who gave us our, our brief historical background on Moliere. He said he would not be averse to coming back on and giving us some background inf information on Montaigne. Yeah. After that, we're going to start with book one of the essays. Following book one, we're going to do book two. Following book two, we're going to do book three. So we're going to attempt. I'm not saying we're going to complete, but we're going <laughs> to attempt to read all three books of Montaigne's essays. Yeah. Um, so if last year was the Dante year of my life. <laughs> we're, going, yeah, like, we're coming up on the Montaigne year of our, of our lives here. Yeah. Looks like the, the next year is going to be the Montaigne year. So stick with us. We'll be moving through whatever wisdom Montaigne has to offer and we'll see where we can go from there. Well, Daniel, uh, thanks so much. It's always a blast to talk to you, and yeah. I'm glad you had as much fun with Moliere as I did. And <laughs> thank you so much for the historical background; that was uh, really fascinating. Hey, it's it's uh, it's something I can contribute. I mean, you got you got all the, uh, the literature smarts. I can I can throw in some fun <laughs> facts now and then. But yeah, man, it was a blast as always. I look forward to tackling Montaigne. All right, so with that, let's sign off. Mm -hmm.